Aloha Kako. So glad you're here for today's Aloha Friday conversation, art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Have you been eating well, taking care of yourself? It does take more planning and effort these days, and there is help out there. The Hawaii Food Bank, working on Oahu and Kauai, partners with Maui Food Bank and Hawaii Food Basket to at least make sure that no one is going hungry. Let's hear now from Ron Mizutani, President and CEO, Hawaii Food Bank, about what that effort's been like. Lately, he's been partnering with farmers to get the job done. We're very happy and proud about the Hawaii Farm Bureau relationship that we built during the pandemic. Uh, we had committed to $200,000 to uh, purchase locally grown produce to keep our farmers farming and, and knowing the, the needs that they had uh, had been shut down because restaurants had closed and, and hotels had stopped receiving their products. We wanted to be a part of the conversation to say, hey, we need you. Uh, we're going to need you not only during a pandemic, but if we want to be self-sustaining as a state and as a community, we, we need our farmers to have incentives. Anyway, uh, it's something that Brian Miyamoto and I talked about. Uh, we had a vision and it came to fruition very quickly. And as of yesterday, we have extended that commitment of $200,000 and we've gone north of almost $950,000. And all of that pumped right back into our local farmers. About 26 farmers now have been benefited from this initiative. And those who receive fresh produce, I mean, just because you're hungry doesn't mean you can't eat healthy. Is this setting up some kind of sturdy pipeline, sort of a system for the future? Yeah, definitely. It's something that I wanted to do even before the legislative session started last session. All of us recognize if we want to be self-sustaining as a community and as a state, our farmers need to be a part of that conversation. We want to sit by their sides and be a voice with them and be an advocate. It's something that I'm passionate about. And I changed the way we do distributions as well here at Hawaii Food Bank because I want to be a part of the nutrition conversation. Before COVID, most of your food was donated. Is that correct? And could you describe the change in how the system operates now for you? Yeah, all food banks are structured that way. No, food banks exist because of donations. And we survive only through donations. Our annual budget for food purchasing is $400,000 because we get donations for the community. We do food drives. We get relationships with our distributors and our local retailers and our local farmers. So on a blue sky day, that's how we survive. We get donations, we sort through them, make sure they're safe, and then we distribute. COVID arrives and our donations came to a, a screeching halt in many cases, especially from our farmers. So we had to purchase like never before and we continue to do so. So with an annual budget of $400,000, you're looking at maybe a monthly spend of about thirty-three dollars to $35,000 during COVID now, because we're not getting any donations and this increase in demand has been so staggering, as of yesterday afternoon, $5.9 million just to purchase food to match supply and demand. Where's that money coming from? Donations. We are so grateful for our community for responding so favorably to our mission. We know their generosity is not going to continue forever. So yeah, we've been able to match purchasing with donations but again, we can't keep that business model going. It's just not sustainable that way. We have to find different ways to get food into our warehouse so that we can get it to our families. The city partnered with us to do those Aloha Stadium distributions. And part of that was a $1 million match uh, that they did through CARES Act money uh, with Hawaii Community Foundation and Bank of Hawaii Foundation. We were able to execute those 14 distributions because of those funds. Enormous, enormous undertaking. And really just 
a lot of learning lessons for us as a food bank team. There's no dignity in waiting seven hours for food. So we, we've, we've become more efficient in those mass distributions. Two weeks ago now, we started to see some CARES Act money. Prior to that, we didn't see uh, any CARES Act money come our way. On the state side, it was a little slow moving. I'll be very honest. I'm not going to say we stopped asking, but we just kept pounding the pavement knowing that we had to keep going. Now that we have been in contact with the state and federal money is coming our way through the food bank network, Hawaii Food Bank, Oahu, Kauai receiving just about $3 million in CARES Act money. Maui Food Bank is receiving as well, as well as the food basket on Hawaii Island. And HCF, Hawaii Community Foundation, is providing a 10% match to that. The reality of CARES Act money, a lot of folks may not understand it, and it's very complicated is that it has to be spent in a certain window. Now, here we are, we're in October. We are only receiving these funds now. Our window of, of spend or opportunity to make use of these federal monies is even smaller. And that's been frustrating, frankly. And, and a lot of the nonprofits have felt that pain, businesses as well, including folks at home. A lot of federal money has just kind of sat idle, or at least it appears that way. What was the problem there? I don't know. It's been very frustrating to witness. I don't know. Were there onerous reporting requirements? You just didn't ever get responses to inquiries? A little bit of all. Lack of transparency in some ways. Very little communication going out to community. Not just, again, nonprofit. Our congressional leaders, I've been in contact with all of them throughout this whole pandemic. But, you know, it's at the state level that has to execute. And, again, it didn't happen as quickly as a lot of folks would want. We're grateful, though. We have such a strong, loyal donor base that allowed us to continue to serve. If not, we would all be in a world of hurt, including the state. Frankly, nonprofits have carried the day, not in all ways, but in a lot of ways. We've all come together, our donor base, as well as in communities and new donors, we've cultivated new relationships. But at the end of the day, if, if it weren't for nonprofits, a lot of families would be suffering even more. In your experience, how many coming to the food bank are like first timers, Ron? Oh, gosh. Um, so to give you an idea, and, and that's a great question because, you know, hunger noy is not one of those subjects that someone's going to raise their hand. It's, it's, there's a tremendous amount of shame that comes with hunger. And I understand that. My mom was a single parent who worked three jobs to provide my sister and I with the best lives that she could provide. She's my hero and will always be my hero. But I know what it's like to go to sleep just eating rice, shoyu, and, and Vienna sausage. Uh, that was supper for many nights. And, and that was all good. And I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, when I would go to school and hear my friends talk about, you know, they had spaghetti or steak or what have you, and I, I just would not participate because I couldn't. Uh, and, you know, on a very smaller scale. I mean, there are folks who the only meal they're receiving is at school. But I get it. And I understand that it takes a tremendous amount of courage to raise your hand. For, for COVID, uh, what we saw at the stadium, and, and we try to be respectful as we can to every vehicle that comes through. And I ask our volunteers, please do not judge. If they come up in a Tesla, do not judge them. And BMW, uh, these are families who never thought they would need assistance, let alone stand in line for food. You're not going to wait in line six or seven hours for food if you didn't need it. We saw it during the government shutdown when TSA workers were lining up outside with tears in their eyes, in uniform, Coast Guard personnel new faces of hunger, never thinking they'd raise their hand. COVID is, you can't even imagine, humbling to watch our team execute, but at the same time, it has been life-changing for me in my professional life. How's your staff holding up okay? Let me share with you some phenomenal, staggering numbers. Since mid-March, which is when we first saw our first case, till yesterday, we have distributed 14,300,000 pounds of food 
in six and a half months. That comes out to probably about 100,000 pounds every day. Uh, in, in May alone, we distributed 144,000 pounds every single day. We do 40,000 on a blue sky day. It's crazy. Uh, How many people are employed at your place? We have 52 people. That also counts Kauai 7. Wow. We don't do this without volunteers. Our volunteers have not stopped serving as well. I hope you're all prepared to do this for an extended period of time, Ron. Yeah. What it worries is, you ahead? I'll be very honest. My, my biggest worry every day is that everybody out there is safe in our warehouse. Ron Mizutani is president and CEO of Hawaii Food Bank. He says protocols are in place should a COVID positive be found. Pop-up food distributions continue daily. Check the Hawaii Food Bank website to connect to food near you. It is a treasure trove of information, that website. Zutani pointed to the amazing nonprofits that pulled together and created our community food safety net. On the friendly isle, Molokai, it works like this. Twice a month, federally funded food arrives on the island. These canned goods and staples are then combined with donations from Maui Food Bank and some produce and wild fish and game sourced on island, and it's distributed through the Equal Opportunity Office, through the Alulike Office, and through little organizations like Gospel Shoes of Jesus Christ Church in Kaunakakai. Judy Caparita runs the food pantry there, and she says times are really rough. Oh, yes, at this time, you know, it's hard time now. There's no more work. You know, like us kupunas, we already set for life. But it's the ones that have little ones. That's the one that needs. And we have problems with our children's children. You look at all those things that's happening. They're in the jail, so they're all over the place. It's the outside, you know, all those that go out. They don't know who they met, you know, while they're in Honolulu or in Maui, and they bring home the germs. But other than that, you know, we're so thankful. We look after each other, the whole community, from the east to the west or north to the south. There's yeah. all one. You talk it to me, I'm, I'm a kupuna, and I really get really caught up in all the activities on the island. Oh, yes. I know everything about our community because I care. I was brought up 16 in a family to watch over each other. And we live off the land, we live off the ocean, you know, and you plant, you live off the earth. So we're so blessed. There is so much that we can have. If you're not lazy, we can have it and share. There's one thing about Molokai, we always take in. The outsiders is not outsiders. We take it as our family. On Molokai, are there people going hungry at all? Well, see, all I know is that we're reaching out to them. 
and then first come, first serve, and then they go all the different places. I deliver. Anyway, I deliver. To where? To wherever, wherever the need is. How's your supermarkets doing? Our supermarkets, oh, sis, because of the crime, yeah, our barge, they have to have a raise, yeah, 46%. So this is what in the stores is more expensive for food. Oh, people must hurt when they yeah. see that. So a lot of them have to go in for food stamps. Yeah. Snap. Yes. So mm-hmm. I don't know how how else to tell you. I know in Honolulu, she's, oh, man, I look at the cars. Thank the Lord, she's. I know. We make you feel lucky you live. <laughs> Honolulu and this is not Maui. You know what I mean, sis? It's slow in growth because if you don't need them, then why ask for it? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, all the ones is the one you don't need. My papa uh-huh. raised us like that. He say, if you don't need it, don't ask for it. You only can run into trouble. So we don't worry about, you know, all this kind of stuff. We worry about taking care of each other. Judy Caparita from the Gospel Shoes of Jesus Christ Church in Kaunakakai. Are you getting state unemployment insurance? If you are, you could be getting a $500 restaurant debit card in the mail. $75 million in COVID aid is going into this Hawaii restaurant card program. This should be a win-win. Rollout expected mid-October. Cards are good through December. Some restrictions apply, but there's good news. No need to apply if you're already getting state unemployment. Ahikatsu or a mahi-mahi filet. Ooh, fish is important food in Hawaii. John Kaneko is program manager for the Hawaii Seafood Council. He's been around the fishing industry for 30 years, more actually, and specializes in seafood safety. You'll hear that he addresses a major reason some people avoid eating fish. Our commercial fishing industry is the primary food producing system in Hawaii. Open ocean fish, tunas, marlins, famous fish like opla, manchong, mahi-mahi, ono. That turns out to be our primary industry for local food production. What do you mean by primary? Primary in value. It's worth over $100 million per year. You know, I should ask you, how do you get your fish, John? How do I get it? Fish is social currency. And so I'm given fish frequently by people that are fishermen, people in the wholesale business, at the auction, all kinds of people. It's currency. There are people that study the social currency of, of fish in fishing communities. Oh, I'm so interested in that. I'm sure that is happening neighbor island like crazy. It's, I just pointed that out that during COVID times or unemployment, 
What do guys that are part-time fishermen do? You got to keep feeding the family so they go out fishing. They may not sell it, but they're still fishing. You switch from a part-time commercial to a subsistence fishing network. Now, if you're providing it to the community and you're, you know, getting taro or boat repairs or something for fish, then it's it becomes a commodity. It's bartering. We know that not only Outer Island Hawaii, but Saipan, Guam, American Samoa, local fish has intense social currency. In some ways, we scratch our heads to figure out how can you operate a commercial fishing business when so much of it is going to social currency. What do you expect with the restaurants reopening? Well, what do I expect? There's going to be fits and starts. The oscillation of the market, supply, demand, stemming from the initial closure in March, we are still seeing that radiate through the system. It's still coming. It's still happening. And you have to understand, a fisherman doesn't want to sit at the dock. He wants the work. He wants to go out and catch. The eternal optimists that they are, it's just one more trip and everything's going to be fine. So they're always very positive about what's coming. And they're going to go out and risk their lives to try to produce fish for this market. And we have to respect that and help them with you know, demand and, and fair prices. And I have to let Never. you go now without ever getting to the actual toxicity or not of mercury levels what? in fish. I think, that is, I think that's still a big issue. Well, it keeps coming back up. But if you ask the question, has it ever happened? No. Mm. And then the qu big question from a scientific or a medical standpoint is why not? Because the only reported cases of mercury poisoning that we have documented from eating seafood was in the 50s and 60s from Minamata in Japan and uh, Niigata. This is only two places, but that was overt mercury poisoning from industrial sources, not open ocean fish. So nobody debates that if you overdo it with mercury, you can get mercury toxicity, but open ocean fish never have these levels of mercury. Two or more people, that's called an outbreak. CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, has zero reported outbreaks of mercury poisoning attributed to eating fish, zero. And even in Minamata, when we look back in the research, look at the epidemiological data, and you apply the information that we know today about selenium-mercury interactions, you can see that it traced exactly what you would have predicted. You were protected from mercury until your selenium levels were overcome by mercury, and then you became toxic. So there was a lag period. FDA originally, they were trying to kick out Canadian swordfish from coming into the Boston market. So they created a limit for mercury. It's a trade barrier. Science today will tell you the health benefits of eating seafood far outweigh any discernible adverse impacts of mercury, which are minuscule. John Kaneko is program manager for the Hawaii Seafood Council. We'll post videos he recommended about mercury levels in fish with this story.
in Hawaii. We don't leave fishing to the professionals. Ed Wadamura is a professional photographer, and he's a member of the Western Regional Fisheries Management Council. He's also a member, 30 years plus, of the Wailua Boat Club, and he's an avid fisherman. Can you imagine this, that Hawaii, just Hawaii alone, the United Fishing Agency auction block before COVID was 70,000 pounds of fish a day. A day, 70,000 pounds. Can you imagine that? Day after day. Day after day. That was the demand. That's the business. What about the recreational side? In Hawaii, we don't call it recreational fishing because, as we say, we don't play with our food because (laughs) in the mainland, a lot of guys are catch and release, right? It's like more of a recreation type thing. But for us, we eat what we catch. So we call ourselves non-commercial rather than recreational. In Hawaii, it's hard to get fishermen involved in fisheries management. We were going to the legislature and giving testimony and meetings at NOAA and the state. You know, we started to notice that the fishermen just weren't showing up, you know. So we decided to to do something about it. Who's we at that point? Is that the Wailua Fishing Club? No, it was a body of this organization called HFAC. It's Hawaii Fishermen's Alliance for Conservation and Tradition, HFAC. As things are, the common grassroots fishermen has this attitude, I don't care. I'm going to fish and that's it. It's pretty neat now because HFAC, the, the followers have grown so much. We're in the thousands. Tell me their experiences. Well, the largest effect would come to what we call the non-commercial fishermen. The estimates are that they number somewhere between a quarter million and 400,000 people in Hawaii. These are people that fish. They go fishing, right? The count was done by the Fish and Wildlife Service and also by some researchers for the state of Hawaii. The commercial fishermen, on the other hand, I think number about 3,000, somewhere around there at the most. And again, a lot of these commercial fishermen are just guys who go out. Most of them just sell to cover expenses. I'm in that boat. We call them weekend warriors. They have regular jobs. They go out on a weekend, they have a boat, they catch a couple ahis, and they can give some to their friends and family, and they're able to sell fish too. How big is that sector? I would say of those 3,000, I will probably estimate about 80% are in that category, whereas 20% are hardcore commercial fishermen that their livelihood is fishing. On the non-commercial side, you know, you're talking about shore fishing, let's say, and you ask the question, is it better or worse now? I think it's worse than it used to be. Not saying that it's overfished. I'm just saying the abundance of fish is not what it used to be 20, 30 years ago. There's a lot more fishermen now, and what we've seen is changes in the nearshore environment. Like what? Let's take Manalua Bay. Before Hawaii Kai, the abundance of fish, it was pretty vibrant, right? And now there's a lot less fish. And that's because there used to be farming going on up in Hawaii Kai. All of those nutrients from farming was coming down into the bay. And that was creating a vibrant ecosystem. That is no longer, right? And Hawaii Kai was fish ponds. That's the other thing, right? So you're changing all of that. That's a really good example of how the nearshore environment has changed 
There's no home for the fish anymore near shore. But if you have a boat and you go out half a mile in the bay, you're going to catch a lot of fish. Is my supply of fish in danger right now, would you say? No. As a local consumer? No. There's too much fish. That's why the longliners aren't going out. Are you noticing the prices are lower at all? You can buy ahi for ten ninety five a pound, or you can buy it for twenty ninety five a pound. If you're going to help a local fisherman, you got to buy the twenty ninety five a pound ahi. Is that correct? Yes. The other cheaper stuff will be imported. I think. Should I look wow. at the label? The last time I looked, it said it was from Malaysia or something like that. You risk the chance of buying what they call frozen and gassed fish. Gassed is carbon monoxide gassed fish. And what the carbon monoxide does, it makes the fish red, so it keeps it red. So, you know, when fish gets old, like ahi, you can see it. It's the color of it. You can tell it's old, right? You can't mm-hmm. tell once it's gassed. It's always, it's going to look good till you can't, I mean, till it becomes a danger eating. It's going to smell bad, and it's still going to look good. And it's funny because the United States is the only country that will accept carbon monoxide gassed fish. Even the countries that do the gassing won't sell it to their people. This is a crazy, crazy thing that we accept that. And it's all about money. Of course, it's going to be cheaper. The consumer is not educated enough to to understand that there is a danger of eating carbon monoxide gassed fish. Eduardo Mora, member of the Western Regional Fisheries Management Council, he says carbon monoxide gassed fish can look good when it's actually spoiled. Kingma of the Hawaii Longline Association says 80% of the fish we eat is in restaurants. So much less fish is cooked at home. But maybe that's going to be changing. Jamie Hamamoto grew up fishing here on Oahu and writes the Ask Jamie column for Hawaii Fishing News. She says more people may be discovering the pleasures of fishing. When I go to the beach, I like to be there before the sun comes up. I enjoy watching the sunrise. I know now with COVID, I'm not supposed to be doing these things, but in the past, you know, lying on the beach, just enjoying, relaxing um, while waiting for the fish to bite. Growing up, you know, my dad would always tell me, it's not about catching the biggest fish. It's about doing something that you enjoy doing. Jamie, after years of seeing fish under plastic or on a plate, I'd be almost scared to catch a fish at this point. <laughs> but you must have grown up with fish around. Yes, so my, one of my uncles um, has a boat. He and his sons, they would go out on the boat and they would bring back a lot of fish for us. So mahi-mahi, ahi, it was always available. Are there a lot of people who rely on fishing for a good part of their normal diet? During this pandemic, um, there was this Facebook page started by, I believe, Matt Ramsey. It helped the non-commercial fisheries to try and quantify how much pounds of fish were caught during this pandemic. 
as well as how many people it fed. I was astonished to find out that between April to September, over 10,000 pounds of fish were caught by you know, local fishermen with, within the Hawaiian islands. And it went to feed over 11,000 people. Those numbers alone let me know that it makes up a huge part of our diet and a huge part of our, you know, our lifestyle here. Are you seeing a lot of first-time fishermen out there? I don't know if it's necessarily first-time fishermen, but with a lot of the layoffs, money is you know, scarce. So making ends meet is difficult. So I know a lot of people, maybe it's not their first time, but they haven't fished in a long time. And, you know, they're going out to, you know, feed their family. Some people might be going stir crazy <laughs> during this pandemic. So just getting out and trying to do things like that, it probably, you know, helps a lot of people. Even I was looking at my old pole and thinking, I think I need some hooks. <laughs> How are fishing supply stores doing these days, Jamie? When I personally go to a few of these stores, I see that there's a line out the door. Um, I don't know, it might be social distancing, but from what I've seen, yes, they are still, you know, busy. Without the fishing supply stores, you know, us local fishermen would have a very hard time trying to catch anything. So this isn't something you could just order everything online and, and just head out? You definitely could, but one of the things about our local fishing supplies is they're very knowledgeable and willing to teach maybe even recommending places to go. I was taught the fish cannot see what you're using. They're under the water. So go down to a local fishing supply and just get one of those combo sets, like the rod and reel. As long as you're familiar with it and able to cast it, you're pretty much set. I would go to Ke'ia, the boat ramp in Kaneohe. I know I bought my cousins there when they were three or four just to get their first experience. <laughs> it's definitely fun. Jamie Hamamoto writes for Hawaii Fishing News. When you throw a line out in the water, your thoughts tend to follow. It could be a good thing. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, a philanthropic organization working to address the impact of COVID-19. Learn more about the Hawaii Resilience Fund at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Sarah Van Gelder, co-founder of Yes! Magazine. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the revolution where you live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu, announcing the reopening of their restaurants, welcoming Kama'aina back to Hoku's, the Veranda, and Plumeria Beach House. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. 
Check out new sounds in this segment from emerging local musician Ted De Oliveira, known as Front Business. Hawaii's art scene is definitely stirring. Opportunities ahead. Artists across the islands have been sewing, carving, pit-firing their entries for the Hawaii Craftsman Show. Deadline to enter is Monday. It's going to be a busy weekend. They're opening October 24th at the new Downtown Art Center in Chinatown. The new Arts and Letters building will open on Nu'u'anu under Miley Meyer of Pu'uhonua Society. That's coming soon. And a new CEO is leading the Hawaii Arts Alliance. Her name is Terry Skillman. Terry's teamed up with the new Hawaii Contemporary Foundation, led by Associate Director Sarah Reza and Executive Director Catherine Don. We're going to take a look now at the Hawaii Contemporary Foundation. Catherine starts off with how this happened and what's in it for you. Earlier this year in 2020, the organization uh, made a decision to transition its signature event from a biennial to triennial every three years rather than every two years. And given that the Honolulu Biennial was formerly um, organized by the Honolulu Biennial Foundation, we've taken this moment also to just change the name and refocus our efforts on where they're needed and count the most. And one of the most significant focus for us during the pandemic is this emphasis on our collaborative partnerships and our community partners, because without them, we as an organization would not be able to realize what we do for the arts community in Hawaii. Geez, Terry, you and I talked back in March and saw a bunch of needs. You kind of are the implementation end of, of this opportunity here, right? Well, we had started the Creative Artists Network a year ago. We felt like artists in Hawaii don't have the support they need. And they also don't get the recognition because people come here to see our arts and culture and we need to support our creative sector a lot more. So that's why we started the Creative Artists Network. So actually it was because of Maile being on both of our boards that helped connect us. The Hawaii Contemporary wanted to do these professional workshops and we have this growing database of Hawaii artists who've been signing up. So it was a perfect fit to be able to extend to Hawaii artists this opportunity. Well, I like your speaker roster. Uh, could you maybe whet our appetites a little bit? Sarah? Uh, hello, Noi. This Thanks. program I have um, devised in London, in New York, in Chicago, in Miami, in Hong Kong, across the Middle East, and in Central Asia. So it's been sort of a mission of mine to support artists all over the world. I come from a museum background as a curator and an art historian. I have amassed great people and colleagues. I'm very fortunate that I'm able to bring them to Hawaii as well. So Jaja Fei is a digital expert. She's known as the digital strategist to the art world. She was really one of the pioneers to start using social media to welcome the ideas of museums to sort of further concepts through the digital realm. How, how did she do that? She was just so astute at using these technologies. She would create meetups, she would create certain groups, Instagram, where mm. artists were speaking to one another. They were connecting with collectors, gallerists, with other museums. She was able to propel and write much earlier on about this sort of changing landscape and sort of had a feel for how important it would be. Do you think that this is particularly applicable here in Hawaii? I think it should be a sort of another mode of expression for artists to be able to utilize all that is at their fingertips. Terry, the Arts Alliance has been doing some organizing. 
on May Day, we did a um, advocacy Zoom. Out of that came the Arts Alliance working with this collective of arts administrators and artists for creative resurgence. We proposed a caucus, an arts and culture caucus that we want to get established at the state legislature that will start helping us push policies that will benefit the creative economy in Hawaii. Hawaii Contemporary will obviously be working and backing us on that. The other thing that Hawaii Contemporary, because of where they're located down in Chinatown, we worked with the Downtown Arts Center and we've submitted a National Endowment for the Arts Our Town grant application. That is to help fund artists and businesses in the historic arts and cultural district. Gee, Miley. A lot of things are coming together. You've got the Arts and Letters Building ready to start up there at the top of Nuuanu. There are lots oh. of really sophisticated artists here in Hawaii that already belong to Hawaii craftsmen, curtain makers, or the Potter's Guild, or the Powwow Studios, Alpuni. I mean, DAC, Downtown Arts Center is going off. So people like Kat and Sarah and the underwriter. The Terasakis. Thanks to Taiji and Naoko are amazing. They're real. They are some of the realest people that have come into this town. So we need to pick it up and move it because everything is in alignment. Poho is the Hawaiian expression. What a waste mm -hmm. if we don't do it now. Arts, movers and shapers. Miley Meyer, Terry Skillman, Sarah Reza, and Catherine Don. Check HawaiiContemporary.com for more on that professional development workshop. They will begin October 14th. We'll uh, include a link with this story. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors The Kahala Hotel and Resort and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. On the next Fresh Air, underwater explorer and photographer Jill Heinerth has dived into underground waterways deep in the earth and beneath a giant iceberg. She's seen hidden creatures as old as dinosaurs and witnessed scenes of surreal beauty. Her work is so dangerous, a hundred of her friends and colleagues have died in dives. Her book is Into the Earth. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. This is HPR One, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. I found Zachary Angeles because he's helping a benefit for Hawaii Appleseed Center for Law and Economic Justice. The four paintings he's donating to their fundraiser are based on inspiring messages that Zach has focused on during this pandemic. But painting isn't all he does. Here, Zach explains. I'm a multimedia artist. I do everything from drawing, painting, woodworking, metalworking, digital design, screen printing, you name it. I do a lot of teaching on the side. I do a lot of festivals when I can. 
I'm also a broadcaster and educator. So yeah, that's kind of me in a really quick nutshell. But yeah. I mean, what do you do at festivals, number one? And what do you broadcast? Where? So at festivals, I sell and do live art, painting in the street, you know, pop up and easel. I do sell stickers, mini sculptures, the whole shebang. Uh-huh. For broadcasting, I'm a verified streamer on Twitch. It is an online platform, primarily run for video games, but I do art live. Really? How big yeah. of an audience can you find there? So right now, my following on there is relatively small, almost 4,000 followers on there. Average anywhere between 20 to 50 people watching at a time from Japan, Korea, all parts of the U.S., uh, New Zealand, other parts of Europe. Um, yeah. You have to be kind of an entertainer as you draw. Right? Of course. <laughs> I enjoy the entertainment part of doing art. It feels good because I'm doing art not by myself. You know, I'm doing it's like basically if I was doing art with like a bunch of people in a coffee shop and they're all kind of talking story and that's kind of how it is, you know? You mean they can live chat you and you'll just draw along? Yeah. That kind of thing? I basically manage a online community where I basically host events and things online. Um, I'm a very big community person. Every other month, I do like a music concert. So I'll reach out to like 16 different like musicians across the world and we'll host like a four-hour concert for a charity. Last month, we did one for Mental Health America of Hawaii. So we raised closer to $2,000, $4,000. I can't even remember. Now, what does this do for you, Zach, working with these nonprofits here? I really thought about it, right? And I think as like an artist, the question was like, how much of an impact does your art really do? You know, and that, that's kind of a question that you want to ask yourself in a stance of, do I want to be known? How known do I want my art to be? And all that type of stuff. And although my audience is international, I really want to impact the place that I live the most. Where do you live? I have a beach. So I'm on the west side. Yeah. Where did you go to school? I got my bachelor's at the University of Hawaii Manoa. My high school was uh, James Campbell High School. Yeah. Are a lot of the people you grew up with still, you know, in the neighborhood? Yeah. A lot of my boys are kind of around here and there. But I would say a lot of the people that I graduated high school with were very globalized. All of my other classmates that left for college, you know, they're all doing big things elsewhere. Yeah. What class was that? Class of 2013. You're a pioneer in a new kind of way of making a living here, <laughs> yeah. Zach? For sure. I try to be, you know, I think there's always a stigma of like oh, what are you going to do as a full-time artist? You know, like, what does that really mean? And how would you even do that? Because no one knows. No one's going to tell you like, ah, yeah, you got to do X, Y, Z, Elemental P, and then you'll get big time famous and make all this money. And it's just like, that's not true Wait, at all. How are you going to get people to buy your art? Yeah, right. That's hard to do. You know, that's, it's not an easy thing to manage. Like you, sure, you can say it out of your mouth, but like, what, is, what does that really mean? And what are you going to do with that? You know, and so... Like pre-COVID, for sure. I was out every weekend. I was at every museum show, every first Friday, every like back alley museum show, you name it. I was trying to be there and be present, you know, and just be around people that were in the scene. So the live, live streaming, streaming thing, I've done for four years now. So I've already built up an audience. They've seen me grow into the artist that I am now. Yeah, the whole streaming thing, I started because I was bad at drawing. <laughs> in all honesty, I was in school at the time in university. I was part of internet communities and it was more of like, man, Zach, you're doing so bad in school. Maybe, possibly, 
maybe if you got on a camera and did it in front of a live audience, you wouldn't suck so much. You know? What? Because <laughs> for me, I do really well under pressure. Okay. So that uh, it provided that pressure that I needed to train and do all of that. And, and is it a living? It is. It is. I actually do make an income from that. So I've managed to create an audience that allows, that supports me in what I do financially. Can you think of anything else you wanted to say? Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's really cool because I'm actually teaching middle school classes right now. And I'm actually teaching them about how the techniques that I, I'm using for these art pieces. Like after this conversation, I actually have another class to lecture at 12. I had one class this morning at 7, 8, uh, 7.50. And well, what do you teach them to do specifically? Well, so I, I kind of freelance teach. So basically, um, if people want me to come out to lecture for them, um, I'm more than happy to do that. The curriculums that I run talk about marks, making marks, and emotional comprehension. So talking about how feelings, thoughts, and memories can be um, introduced into just making simple strokes, simple marks, and how to utilize that superpower of feeling that we all have and making your artwork so much stronger in a sense where it's emotionally charged. It contains things, stories, mysteries, and feelings that the world may never understand but you. And so that's the empowerment that they're going to have. That's why I teach all ages from kindergarten to university um, so that we can all kind of talk about that together. You're doing that with middle schoolers online now? Yeah. How is that? <laughs> I like it. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. One of the teachers asked me to talk about it. And this is my first time online teaching this week. And so it's not unfamiliar since I already stream online. So it's not unfamiliar to me. The kids are responding very well, as they usually do, because the, the things that I make them do are make them question their life, but also unlock their creativity in a sense that they've never thought of before. Because um, I like to talk about things that usually school doesn't really talk about, um, which is the emotions, the feelings. They've got to get out a paper and pencil and do things too. Yeah, I, do. I love teaching. Teaching is always fun and exciting. <laughs> Zachary Angelus. Zach, he's called multimedia artist. He's just one of the artists supporting Hawaii Appleseed at Artists Numeral, Numeral 4 Appleseed. And the fundraiser runs October 12th to 18. We'll post the link. And if you head to Zach Angelus' page online, you've got a link to his Twitch account there. Tonight, UH Manoa Outreach College opens its live online fall concert series with pianist Tommy James at the helm. I mean, these are true jazz musicians coming on here. They don't even play together normally. They're split up doing paid gigs. But tonight, it's all for us, free, starting at 7. Theme is Duke Ellington. But you got to register, outreach.hawaii.edu. It's going to be great. And different concerts continue over the next three days. We're just swinging through some stuff you got to know about. I saw Kumukahua's new play, Lovey Lee, online last weekend. Fun experience with the whole family. I could never have gotten them down to the theater. It was great. A flavorful slice of time, circa 1970s, the drag scene on Hotel Street in Chinatown. Place to be accepted before gay pride really existed. Kumukahua, this weekend and next. And there's a coalition of architecture groups centered at UH presenting a free after-school educational program for kids. It's called Who Designs Hawaii? And one more 40-week session starts October 6th. Check that out. After-school enrichment will post the links. And the Hawaii Book and Music Festival is underway already online. They're discussing Hawaii issues. 
what's the university's role? How can we rebuild the economy? Books, authors, great thinkers at the Hawaii Book and Music Festival going on right now. Oh man, that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been so much fun. We really love to hear from you, too. Call that talkback line. Leave us your comments, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Comments, we love them. Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. We've got that HPR website, so listen back to our shows under The Conversation. This program is produced by Lillian Zong, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. Our theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. On Monday, Catherine Cruz will be back with more of the conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Until then, let's take care of each other. Happy Aloha Friday. <laughs>